When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Jennifer Kayong Lee, your host, and with me here is Rebecca Kwong, who will be talking about her book, Babel, or The Necessity of Violence, an arcane history of the Oxford Translators' Revolution, published by Herbert Voyager in 2022. In Babel, we meet Robin Smith, orphaned by cholera in Canton in 1828. He is brought to London by mysterious Professor Lowell, who, tra- who trains him in Latin, ancient Greek, and Chinese to prepare him for enrollment in Oxford University's Royal Institute of Translation, also known as Babel. At Babel, Robin and his cohort of polyglot friends dedicate themselves to the study of languages with the hopes of one day becoming practitioners of silverwork, a process by which meanings lost in translation are captured by silver bars to magical effect. Yet the magic of silver is not only glamorous, it is a power hoarded at the center of English empire, and it powers imperial expansion overseas. As Robin soon learns, to study at Babel is to be complicit in this violence, and Robin soon finds himself caught between his studies at Babel and the shadowy Hermes Society, an organization dedicated to sabotaging the silver working that supports imperial expansion. In turn, Robin must make decisions about who to trust, and how much he is willing to sacrifice to bring Babel down. Thank you so much for joining me, Rebecca. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a bit about yourself. Sure. So I was born in Guangzhou, China, much like Robin, and I immigrated to the U.S. when I was five. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, went to the East Coast for college, did a few years of grad graduate school in the UK, and now I live in New Haven, where I study East Asian languages and literatures at Yale. My research focuses on modern and contemporary Sinophone literature, and I say Sinophone because I look specifically at literature produced in Taiwan and Hong Kong, literature written in Chinese but outside of mainland China, and its interactions with Asian American literature, particularly Chinese American literature. 
Um, I also love languages. I've studied Chinese, Japanese. I'm currently doing a reading course in French. Um, my fiance and I are studying Italian to get ready for a summer in Venice. So it's not a surprise that I ended up writing an entire novel about languages and what gets lost in translation. That's super cool. Um, I was almost... I don't know. So you talk about Latin quite a lot in Babel, and I used to study Latin. I love those parts. Um, and I love that you could do that, even though um, Latin is not among the languages that you're listing. Like, I'll ask a question about this later. But yeah, I feel like you, you do such a range with so many languages. It's super cool. So um, yeah, I actually I did <laughs> to study Latin in high school, which was which was very good because it gives you the rigorous grammatical foundation that you need to study any other romance language. Studying French and Italian has been so easy to me because their grammar structures are just easier versions of Latin. So even though I've forgotten most of the language vocabulary I learned, I think that structural stuff stays in, in your bones. Um, although... I had to have my uh, editorial assistant in the UK correct some of my Latin and copy edits before I went to print because I just had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, I relate to that a lot. Yeah, I so I, I learned Latin in high school and then I like forgot all of it. But I recently started learning Japanese and somehow Latin. I'm like, wow, that that actually helped me think about grammar in ways that are continuing to be helpful. Oh, that's how I felt about studying Japanese, too. The grammar just felt so satisfying to me. Um, piecing together Japanese sentences felt a lot like doing math, which is weird, but intensely satisfying in a way that I think learning a language like English and Chinese is not because we don't have the same conjugations. Exactly. No, that's, yeah, I feel that. <laughs> I, I going from Japanese I'm like wow English is very unsatisfying because of the way the conjugations are not yeah it's not really a thing um but yeah before we get too far ahead of ourselves I'll start with our usual big question what brought you to this project I always write about whatever academic issues are troubling the most at the time so I started writing the Poppy War trilogy when I was an undergrad because I was occupied with issues of 20th century Chinese history and the rise of Mao and Chinese culture and heritage and its interactions and conflicts with the West um, for its entire history. So Babel was a bit a natural extension of those same questions about the supremacy of Western civilization, supremacy in quotes, and colonialism, neocolonialism, and violent decolonial struggle. I was also increasingly interested in translation studies at the time. Um, I am bilingual, and a lot of my research happens in both English and Chinese. And I'm also a professional translator, so I'd been thinking all year before I started writing Babel about what kind of choices you have to make when you translate a text from one language into another because you can't keep everything. There's no direct one-to-one -one correlation between words in any language, no matter how closely related they are. So translation always involves some kind of distortion and some kind of artistic imposition on the part of the translator. I was also at Oxford, and I'm very influenced by my sense of place. I started writing the Poppy War trilogy when I was living in Beijing, 
um, and visiting all these ancient temples and palaces and going to all these museums. And Oxford is such a magical place already. I feel like so many fantasy authors who have lived there ended up writing their own fantastical version of Oxford. Um, you can see a lot of Oxford in J.R.R. Tolkien's work. Philip Pullman, obviously, has his version of Oxford. So I thought, well, it's time for me to write my Oxford novel as well. So all of those influences came together into the kind of decolonial treatise on translation that is Babel. Um, so one of the things that first stood out to me when reading Babel, which you've already started talking about, is how central a love of language is to the book and your world building. Like, it's so clear from kind of the start, like the most immediately immersive thing for me was just the love of languages in it. Um, and the novel is really brimming with tidbits of insight and knowledge about a range of languages. So I was wondering if you could tell us about your process for researching and writing about words and etymologies, especially for languages you don't know. That involves bothering a lot of my friends who do speak other languages. There are a lot of authenticity readers credited in the acknowledgments of Babel, and that's because for a book about language, it's very important that every single reference mentioned is in fact accurate. Um, so not only because of the languages, uh, Babel is a work that um, is really a group effort. It involved an immense amount of research and consulting people with different experiences, different languages, different backgrounds, um, because I don't think decolonial struggle can really be possible if you're just using your own experience and your own epistemology. Um, there are so many conversations going on in Babel about how coalitions are important and how listening to others is important. So one of my closest friends is Pakistani Muslim and um, her experiences formed a large part of the basis of Rumi's identity. I had Haitian sensitivity readers for Victoire. I was talking to Friends who spoke French and German and Spanish for idioms they liked and false friends and cognates and turns of phrase that they thought were really interesting that could go into the book. So in more than in, in more ways than one, it's a conglomeration of voices. And I think that's the only thing that made it possible for me to write this. This is not a book that I could have written in isolation in a way like the popular trilogy was possible because that drew much more on just my personal family history and my own research. But Babel involves the work of so many. Yeah, there's such a range. I think you brought so many characters alive in different, in very different ways. And I love that. Um, since you mentioned Victoire, I was wondering if you could tell us more about what the process of writing her was like. Like I loved her so, so much. Um, yeah, like where I so from the beginning, I wanted to bring in the history of the Haitian Revolution somehow into this narrative, even though they seem worlds apart. Babel's a story set in 1830s England, and the Haitian Revolution happens in the other hemisphere. But one of the central questions in Babel is what does it really take for revolutionary change to succeed? What kind of effort goes into those momentous shocks that changes the course of history? And how is it possible? to bring about futures that in the current instance feel 
unimaginable. And if you read a lot of the contemporary scholarship about the Haitian Revolution, they remark on how unimaginable it seemed at that time, so unimaginable that a lot of people in France were in fact in denial that it was happening even as it was. So I wanted to to allude to that sense of just world-changing revolution and Victoire's background was my angle to work it in. But at another angle, all of the characters in Babel deal with some sense of severance from their heritage and feeling like they don't belong in their new home, but also not having access to the place where they were born. Robin obviously experiences to a great extent, but Victoire's backstory, which I don't want to spoil too much of, means that she doesn't have access to that revolutionary fervor. She doesn't identify with the Haitian revolution. She doesn't really know anybody else from Haiti. And that's an intensely difficult personal struggle for her. So it's it's a very fraught situation that she's in being Haitian born, but being raised and growing up in France and being taught constantly that she has to speak the Frenchman's French and not Haitian Creole, which is the language that she spoke with her mother. So there's all sorts of issues with identity and heritage and loss wrapped up in that. There's also the obvious linguistic conflict between French and Haitian Creole, which has, which Haitians have been fighting for so long to have recognized as a proper language with its own lexicon and grammar that's equally as sophisticated as French, even though they're working against this stereotype that Haitian Creole is just a corrupt, base, worst version of of French. Um, So I think it's becoming obvious here that all of my characters come from ideas first, theoretical ideas about history, culture, language that I want to manifest. Um, And those are the issues that I wanted to write around when I came up with Victoire. Yeah. And I think you capture those complexities so well in her. So, yeah. Um, I also really love the theory behind how silver works, um, that it captures the meaning lost in translation as a word or phrase moves from one language to another and manifests that lost meaning as magic. Um, How did you develop that logic or the complexities of this magical system? Were there any challenges in particular to building out that part of the world? No, it actually came pretty easy to me. There are two elements here. The first is what's lost in translation, and the second is the centrality of silver. I'd been thinking about the mystical stuff that's lost in translation from one language to another for a long time. If you read translation theory stretching all the way back to the Greeks, I think translators have always struggled with well, what is this mystical realm of meaning that we're all trying to pinpoint but never quite grasp their languages? And this is related to the idea of a lost Adamic language, which is this perfectly comprehensible language that um, does in fact capture in perfection every single concept and every every idea and noun and um, thing of being that there ever has been, which was purportedly lost to mankind when the Tower of Babel fell. And since we don't have that Adamic language, we just have languages that can kind of imperfectly capture this pure mystical realm of thought. But 
um, but all in slightly different ways. And that's why things get lost in translation. So that's already inherently very magical and interesting. Um, and once I locked down, I wanted to work with that for my magical system. It was an easy choice to then wed it with the symbolic importance of silver. And I initially started decided on silver because the opium war of 1840 was famously fought over the silver deficit that the British empire was running with China. The problem was that there were all these goods they were purchasing from the Qing empire, like silks and porcelain, etc., but not really anything that the Qing empire wanted in return. So um, until, of course, opium proved to be wildly popular in China, um, and this is something the Qing empire was not very happy about. Therefore, the the British fought the, the opium war to maintain their rights to continue selling opium um, on Chinese shores. Um, and, and it was all about silver. And the silver deficit was reversed as a result of this war. And it's that influx of silver that allowed the next great phase of colonial expansion. So it, it plays this hugely important role in both Chinese and British history. Um, and there's all this other convenient symbolic value attached to silver as well. Um, silver was forged using mercury and mercury hermes is the god of travelers and messages and translation hermes is where we get hermeneutic so there's all this interconnected web of meaning that is so convenient um making silver the basis of a magic system based on translation yeah i i do think as i was reading babel like it felt like it all fit together so elegantly um and i love that you focused on um the kind of the idea of like an atomic language I don't know I remember like talking about that in like translation theory class as an undergrad but for me it was kind of it seems magical seems fake and then like moves on but I like that I, I love that you took it like very seriously and developed it into um like yeah like thought about that as like the basis for like magic I was like oh yeah <laughs> that's that's a way to think about it too. Um, so I'm curious, and I think you talked a bit about this earlier. Um, I'm curious about how you approached writing about um, like racism and sexism at Oxford within this historical context, because you do it really vividly. And like, I'm sure there were many sources to consult about what Oxford from a kind of dominant perspective was like at this time. But I'm wondering if in order to write about it for marginalized students, if there was a different set of sources that were helpful to you. I think that the kind of marginalization students of color experience at Oxford today is obviously related, but not identical to the kind of marginalization they might have experienced in the 1830s. Um, the things that Robin and his cohort go through, I think, are a lot more intense and vivid and blunt than the things that go on at these schools today, which is maybe being overly nice to these schools because you do have, frankly, a lot of just overt racists um, in the streets and in the classrooms. Um, but I think for the large part, it's more nefarious, it's more insidious and subtle, the ways in which certain bodies are excluded from space as Oxford in a way that was just 
loudly proclaimed in the 1830s. So I was thinking about their different relations of power to the university and I wanted to be very careful about not just replicating contemporary power structures because it, it is a descendant of that colonial era, but a lot of dynamics have shifted and it would feel out of place and out of time to just recreate a lot of conversations that I and my friends have had. Um, but one dynamic that did carry over was how it feels to be privileged at an institution that needs you and values you and purportedly supports you, but at which you clearly also don't belong. The reason why Robin, Letty, Rummy, and Victoire are at Oxford is because they're good at languages and the Institute of Translation is the most prestigious department at Oxford, which means that they get these wonderful stipends. They don't pay tuition like their classmates do. Um, They have all these special accesses and privileges. So that's existing at the same time as the fact that in every other context, they're being made to feel like they don't belong there. Um, And I felt this to a a much lesser extent when I was at Oxford because I was at Oxford and Cambridge on a Marshall Scholarship, which is a fully funded scholarship for American students to spend two to three years pursuing graduate study in the UK. So I was also never worrying about money, constantly going to champagne parties, being celebrated as this talent that the school needed, while also clearly not looking like someone who typically graduated from Oxford. Well, that's less true today than it was a few decades ago, but it's really not built for people like us. So I think not to get into a whole treatise on the dark academia genre, but I think one contradiction that's at the heart of it is loving a place and wanting to be a part of an elite group and having some reasons to think you might be a part of that elite group while also criticizing it and and wanting it to burn down. And that's something that carries through from the 1830s to now. I guess we also sort of started talking about this with Victoire, but um, you have a range of really complexly imagined characters in Babel, which, you know, I do want to foreground that because I know you say like, oh, all my characters start from like ideas and they do, but they also feel very human at the same time. Um, And I was wondering um, if there were or was any character or characters that you especially enjoyed writing or found especially challenging to write. And if you wanted to tell us about any of them. I think I enjoyed writing Rummy the most. He was also the most challenging to write because there are all these harmful stereotypes of Muslim characters in fantasy literature. And I really wanted to make sure that Rummy didn't fall into those traps and that he was a source of representation that Indian Muslim readers could see and connect with rather than feel discouraged by. And the the genesis of Rami was from conversations with one of my closest friends who had mentioned is Pakistani Muslim. And she'd expressed frustration that you never get to see just flamboyant, brave, ridiculous Muslim boys in, in literature written by non-Muslim authors. There are all these archetypes that are more common instead. And um, just because of her personality and um, in our friendship, it seemed 
it seemed so easy to create Remy's personality. He feels like our son. Um, all the jokes that he makes, the poetry that he references, his worldview, his boldness, that's all something that just feels like a combination of our souls. So in that sense, he was really easy to put on the page. Um, at the same time, I'm not Muslim. So it took a lot of conversations with my friend about the history of that era and naming conventions and relationships he would have had with his family and the way that he would have engaged with his faith as someone who is a practicing Muslim in 1830s Oxford, but can't be too obvious about it, who has to hide it. How do you depict a Muslim character who is is trying to be discreet about his faith without falling into the trap of writing a character who rejects his faith and doesn't want to have any connection with it whatsoever. So we ended up also getting an additional sensitivity reader for Rummy just because I wanted to make absolutely sure that my unconscious bias hadn't made its way into the text. Um, and it took a lot of research and conversations. And I learned so much not only about the faith, but also about so I, I thought, you know, I, I'm pretty good at avoiding harmful stereotypes and I would never use these racist tropes that other people do or Islamophobic tropes. But it turns out even if you're going in with the best intentions, you can be just so heavily influenced by the culture that you're ingesting that you don't even realize what you're putting into the character. Um so it was a really helpful, clarifying process for me. Um, and I'm glad we put in all that work for Rumi because Muslim readers seem to be identifying with him a lot. And that makes me really happy and grateful. Yeah, I love that you're um, just able to highlight how anti-racism is not just about like intention. It requires a lot of work and coalition building also um, requires a lot of thinking across like difference. Um, and just like being a good translator, it involves just opening your ears and listening to what other people are saying. And I'm not trying to be self-congratulatory with the writing process. I'm, I'm sure there are mistakes in Babel and criticisms to be made. Um, but I think it was very illustrative to me how creatively productive the sensitivity reader process can be instead of a hindrance like white writers like to complain that it is, it didn't cramp my creativity at all. If anything, it made the book better because it gave me more things to think about and work into the text. Yeah. And I think one of the things that um, yeah, I'm hearing from you, and I think even as I was reading, Babel felt like a shift from the Poppy War was like a big, like this kind of a range of perspectives. Like I feel like Rin in some ways, um, was very caught in like her own mind. Like we don't feel the consciousness of very different perspectives in quite the same way that we get in Babel. So I'm glad that our conversation, I think is highlighting that for listeners too. Um, yeah. And so since this is your fourth book, which is incredible, by the way, um, congratulations. Um, I was wondering, yeah, it's so exciting. Um, and you have a fifth one coming out, which is also exciting. So I was wondering how the process of writing Babel differed from that of writing the Poppy War trilogy. What was easier and what got harder? 
What was easier was that it wasn't a poppy war book, which meant that I was free to do whatever I wanted. The problem with locking yourself into a trilogy is that you're then stuck with those characters for the next five years, and you're really restricted by the promises that you've made in the first and second book um, in terms of where the plot goes and what what things need to be wrapped tidily up by the climax. Um, and I think for me, I had a lot of fun writing The Burning God, but I was also just really ready to be finished. I wanted to think about new characters, new worlds, new ideas. I wanted to work on something that hadn't come to me as a teenager. Um, and Babel just felt like a playground in which I could do anything. I could work with new aesthetics, come up with a whole new cast of characters, make new jokes, do new formal and structural things with the text. It was my first time working with footnotes, which was so fun. It was my first time using interstitial chapters with POVs from different characters. It was my first time writing in this different prose voice, which is slower and more deliberate and also more jam-packed with allusions and references than the prose and the poppy war trilogy is the poppy war books they're they're trying to be action novels so the sentences are very short and blunt and i try to say a lot with the least amount of words possible both in the dialogue and descriptions of especially action scenes but with Babel, I did a lot of vocal training by reading Victorian classics. I read a lot of Dickens. I read a lot of Austen, even though, well, she's not properly Victorian, but we can consider her Victorian if we think of that as just the long 19th century. Um, and there's this, it's not quite a slower pace because all this information is being flung at you and it's still active and engaging, but it's a different way of thinking about scenes and characters. And the narrator will more often make snide aside to the reader to inject some backstory or um, some other relevant context to add to the richness of the scene. And I had a lot of fun just pursuing the maximalist richness of the text rather than trying to strip it down for some high octane actiony feel so all of that was fun and easy and just a great time um what was harder is that it is structurally more difficult and it's a standalone which means that you really do need to do everything in one book um, a trilogy is easier because you can have the hero's rise and backstory for the better part of the first book and then um, uh, like divide up the action and plot twists over the next two. But with Babel, which is already structured as a Bildungsroman, you have to deal with the, the early childhood and the maturation process and the early education before you can get to the interesting part when the character is an adult, which means pacing is very difficult because you don't want your reader to get bored and wander off because your character is still 13 years old and there's 400 pages left to go. Um, so structurally, so relatedly, the structure had to be different. You couldn't use a three-act structure because we'd waste so much of the first act with backstory and the first half would just be far too top-heavy. Um, and I found that, and it, it took me quite a while to realize that a five-act structure was more appropriate for this book, but that required a lot of rearranging things and thinking about what we were doing with pacing in the beginning. Um, so I think it does read as a slower book and one that you need to be patient with. But I think um, it is such that the rewards by the last two acts are greater than any of the Poppy War trilogy books. 
yeah, there's such a, like, kind of a large vision for how the book fits together over the five acts. I think you really mastered it. So I want you to, I want to know more about, like, what the revision process for that was like since you started talking about it. I think that the revision process for Babel was easier than it was for any of the Poppy War books because... By the time I got to writing book four, I had a pretty good internalized sense of what structurally stories need. So I didn't have to go back and make giant cuts for pacing, and I didn't have to fluff up an act that felt like it was running too thin. Um, The big revision change that we made after the first round was Robin's characterization because it is such a difficult and complicated psychological journey that he goes through between the time that he arrives in England and starts socializing himself as an Englishman and the time that he comes to this sort of revolutionary consciousness um, around the start of Act 4. And the problem with Robin is that he is not as outwardly expressive as a character like Rin is. He keeps a lot of things pent up. He's very reflexive and deliberate, but also very confused a lot of the time. So I think in the initial drafts, his character came off as a bit contradictory and confusing because he was always saying one thing and then doing another and believing one thing and then acting on another. Um, And we did keep all those contradictions because his character is meant to be confused and contradictory, but it required a lot more laying out on the page what thought processes and thoughts and debates were going on in his mind that made him so unable to choose and conflicted about his own identity. And there's a point in the middle of the book where the switch flips and he finally makes a decisive choice. And that's a big moment for him. And it took a lot of revision to really drive that moment home and make it clear to the reader how significant it really was. So I ended up reading a lot of psychoanalysis <laughs> in order to to reflect, uh, to represent this psychological journey correctly. Um, that was fun. A lot of Freud, a lot of Lacan. I think you can, the, the very Freudian aspect is his relationship with his father, which functions as um, synecdoche for his relationship with um, Great Britain. Um, but yeah, I would say character work more than anything was the focus of revisions for Babel, whereas in the past we'd been more focused on um, plot in constitu- uh, plot continuity and pacing. Yeah. Um, okay, so since you talked a bit about the footnotes, um, and, you know, I love them. You love them. I, I was wondering if for our listeners, you could just tell us a bit about them. Um, it seemed to me that there was a kind of, like, two voices going on with them. Like, there's the kind of voice that just tells us about, like, the language. Or maybe there's three voices. I don't know. So there's, like, the part, the footnotes that tell us about the language um, and just kind of explain, like, language-related things happening in the book that are not explained in text. But then there's the footnotes that explain like Babel related historical references. So like kind of like things that are created for the fantasy world that Babel lives in. And then there were ones that felt more like, like just history as it happened. So not, but I don't know. That's what it seemed like to me. Um, But yeah, I was wondering if you could just, just tell us more about what 
writing the footnotes was like if you ever had to I don't know like make decisions about what footnotes belonged and what didn't or like yeah those kinds of anything in that vein I had a ton of fun writing the footnotes I've always loved footnotes in fiction um Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norell obviously um as it's a comp title for Babel was one of my more recent encounter with footnotes where I felt like they were really working um, in a way not to interrupt the flow of the text, but to create all these splintering um, paths that the reader could follow down if they were curious. Um, and Jonathan Stroud's Bartimaeus trilogy, uh, which I read as a child, also uses footnotes to great effect because it's Bartimaeus making, he's breaking the fourth wall and uttering snide aside the reader constantly, even though he is both the narrator of the footnotes and the narrator of the main text. Um, he's using two different voices in them. So in the same way, there are two different narrators in Babel. There's the close third-person POV perspective of Robin, who is a very unreliable main character, um, who can't make a his own mind and doesn't have complete information and is reflecting reality in a warped sense um, because of how limited his perspective and the perspective of every character in the text is. Um, so you can't really trust him or his take on anything. And you can't really trust the narrator of the footnotes either, but she does have access to information and history in a way that he doesn't. That narrator is located in a different space and time. She's not quite contemporary, but she is speaking after the events of the entire novel. Um, so she is a lot more omniscient and able to fill in the gaps and give explanations for things or say things that contradict what Robin believes, um, which creates for a very fun interplay between the two ongoing voices, I think. Um, we actually wanted so badly to emphasize the difference between these two voices that we have two different narrators for the audiobook. Um, we have a male voice doing Robin and then a female voice during the doing the narrator of the footnotes. And I think that really is the only good way to do footnotes in an audiobook, um, because otherwise I think there's no way to distinguish what's going on in the main text and what is an aside. Um, because I don't think it would have been very fun to constantly have the reading experience be interrupted by footnote one, footnote 27, et cetera. Um, so I thought that was a very clean, elegant solution. And I'm really excited to listen to the final version. Yeah, I'm excited about that too. That sounds super fun. Um, yeah, I loved, um, the, yeah, it was, they were very refreshing. Like the footnotes, it just felt like it was another, it was like there's Robin stuck in his own head and then somebody sensible being like, okay, this is, this is the big picture. Um, but yeah. So I think this is another one that you started to talk about in the very beginning. Um, it's clear your background in academic research and translation theory inform your work in Babel um, as well as your own kind of personal experience of studying um at Oxford and Cambridge on a fellowship. So I was wondering um, if, like, to what extent, and I, I know you talked a bit about working at the intersections of Sinophone and um, Asian American Lit, like, to what extent your current PhD research 
intersects or emerges from the themes you're grappling with in Babel. I don't know what I'm going to write my dissertation about yet. I have another year and a half to think about it, which is good because I feel myself pulled between all of these equally good options. But I think one obvious intersection between my research and Babel and to a lesser extent the popular trilogy is that I like to study borders and in-betweens and the outside-inside distinction I'm interested in how Sinophone literature and Asian American literature talk back at each other because they're, I think there's this prevailing assumption that they're just two separate literary traditions. Um, and the language is a big part of that. One falls under um, the English department and one falls under the Asian studies department. The, the break of diaspora also contributes to that. You have a lot of Chinese American writers who can't read Chinese and don't read Chinese literature and don't consider themselves as part of the same literary tradition as authors who left the mainland and now are writing from Hong Kong or Taiwan or Malaysia, etc. But I suspect that there are more roots running between them and tying them together than we like to think. So I'm, I'm moving in the direction of a dissertation that examines some of those roots and looks for similarities in traditions that have been so long considered as separate. And obviously, the figure of a translator sits at the very middle of that bridge because it is Chinese-American translators who are also creative writers themselves. So people like Ken Liu, who are working the hardest to bridge those literary translations and put those authors in conversation with one another. So translation is a big part of my academic work. It's obviously the most important thing about Babel. So yeah, that's where things are going. And you can check in with me in, in two to three years to see if I've made good on that promise. Yeah, I'm really excited for that. I think increasingly um, we see people who are interested in bridging that gap um, and not just um, for Chinese, but also like Japanese, Korean. Um, in some ways, I've I, <laughs> this is deeper like slightly, but I feel like in some ways it's harder for Sinophone literature because there's such a grip on like, um, like this idea of like a mainland Chinese identity. Like I feel like with Korea phone literature, which that's not really a term that people use, but like with Korean language literature, um, in some ways things have been more porous about thinking about diasporic writers as also Korean, but that's not necessarily what I've heard in yeah, some other arenas, but I really hope you write a dissertation that does that and I'm excited to see it. Um, so I'm curious, what for you is the biggest difference between writing fiction and writing academic work? The differences are dwindling for me, which is worrying because it means that um, my fiction is getting increasingly less commercially appealing. I am struggling a bit because I am very lucky to be in a social setting where I can make references to complicated texts and people understand what I mean. And I can use certain terms of art or use certain argumentative structures that are deeply situated within a literature that everybody else is equally familiar with. Um, it's just 
one of the nicest things about being on campus and being in seminars with smart, well-read people. But writing fiction is very different because even if you trust that your reader is smart, and I always trust that my reader is smarter than I think publishing marketing would like to trust them to be, um, not everybody is in the same field and not everyone is thinking about those same conversations. So I constantly have to remind myself to take a step back and reevaluate what needs explaining, what needs exposition, and what doesn't. And this is very difficult for me. Um, I struggled a bit with this in Babel, and I'm lucky in that obviously my agent and my editors are not in the same PhD program as I'm in. So I have people to impose external checks and say, this makes absolutely no sense, or this is starting to bore me. Um, But even with Babel, you can see that I've just resigned myself to losing a certain readership who doesn't want to sit through lectures on etymology I've been very lucky with the reviews of Babel so far. People seem to really like it so far, but I think the people who like it are the ones who already find the subject material very interesting, who think languages are cool, who think etymology and word history um, are just inherently cool and are willing to come along on the ride. But it's not a book that appeals to the lowest common denominator. Um, So there's just a subset of people. And this has nothing to do with intelligence, but just interest and patience. Um, There's a whole subset of readers who will probably never pick up Babel, and that's fine. Um, There are so many other books that will be appealing and interesting to them. Um, So I have to resign myself to sacrificing a certain amount of commercial appeal to continue writing the things that I want to write. And so this is hard because the next book that I'm working on, which is also fantasy and involves some romance. So I think those are two generally appealing traits, but it is also about logic paradoxes and puts Plato and Dante in conversation with each other and thinks a lot about embodiment and rational choice and the friction between abstract philosophical thinking and um, the messiness of living in a a true embodied life. Um, And that's just not a conversation that I think um, many people are that interested in having. It's deeply interesting to me, but I think I just can't expect to write um like universally appealing books and and that's a good thing you shouldn't want to write something universally appealing because if it appeals to every single person it means it doesn't have qualities that uh make it all that special but this is a big struggle for me um I, you know, maybe it will be that I write these increasingly niche academic books that only a small reader, number of readers are interested in picking up. But as long as the writing process makes me happy, then it will be okay. I I think you'll have a a large audience for years to come, but thank you for sharing about that. It's... um... I did um, see a fun... A summary of Babel that described my audience as nerds of sufficient intensity. And I thought, <laughs> that's great. That's exactly who they are. Just people who are down to read about really weird, interesting, and <laughs> intricate stuff. And that's not everybody. Not everyone has the time or patience to put up with me. But as long as some people are, that's that's okay. Then I'll keep <laughs> writing books for them. What about your academic work? Like, do you feel like it's shaped by, because I feel like you've talked a lot about how your creative work is increasingly being shaped by your academic work, but is 
is there like a kind of reverse thing happening as well or or not really? I actually had to work pretty hard um, during the first year of my PhD program to separate out my creative influences from the kind of arguments I make academically. Um, because when I read a text, because I'm also a writer, I instinctively think about it from the writer's perspective. And I wonder what deliberate structural choices are they making? What are they trying to say with how they've written the story? How would I have written it differently, etc.? So my instinct is to talk about it as a peer and a colleague and a reviewer instead of a scholar, which requires a very different lens of looking at a text um, and a completely different toolbox. So my advisor took me aside after I'd written some papers during my first semester and said, these are fine, but you're not making arguments in a way that would be accepted in an academic journal because you're not appealing to you know, certain forms of textual evidence or situating in the literature. You're, you're writing about it as a creative, and you can't put that in academic work. And I disagree a little bit. I think there's a, a space for a certain middle ground between the creative and the critic. Um, but I also understand what she was saying. So I'm practicing actually separating out my creative identity from my academic identity, at least in the first few years of my PhD. And as I get more confident with the way I write academically and in the way I do research, I'll start experimenting again with bridging those two. But for now, it's kind of like, um, you know, tying one arm behind your back so that you can develop muscles in another. It's just something I need to filter out completely for the time being. Yeah, it sounds like the kind of thing that, um, like, once you figure it out, like, your creative, like, the knowledge you have of as a creative writer will, in the end, like, really benefit the work you're doing. Um because you can read in a way that perhaps many scholars cannot. Um, but yeah, thanks for sharing about that too. Sounds like a, a difficult conversation to have with terrifying advisors. I mean, I'm sure your advisor is very nice, but all advisors are terrifying. So. No, it was actually very funny. She was okay. like, you're being so extra and you're being so opinionated. I need you to calm down and look at this text as a scholar. And I was like... You are so right. You are so right. <laughs> that's that's really funny. Um, I, I'm glad it sounds like it was not a horribly stressful conversation. Um, no, it was one that I really needed to hear. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah. So my last question about Babel is what was your favorite part of writing Babel? I think the interactions between the cohort and the scenes that are purely about friendship were the most enjoyable for me to write. I have always loved writing school settings because it's just this atmosphere that I think you never really get again in your adult life where everyone's in the same place, everyone's developing intellectually and the rest of the world doesn't matter, only your assignments matter and your lectures and the cool abstract ideas that you're discussing during seminar. And there's just something so pure and magical. There's a certain alchemy to it, the kind of friendship that is forged at college that I can write about for decades. So 
every argument, every bit of fun, every joke, every debate that's exchanged between Robin, Rummy, Victoire, Letty just was infinitely amusing to write, um, especially because so much of it comes from my personal experiences with my own friend groups and the internal fights we've had, the ways in which we hurt each other, the ways in which we need each other. It it just felt like digging deep into memories and dredging all of that up to make the bond between these four feel real to the reader. Um, and, you know, everything else took research. Everything else took so much pondering and deliberate planning but all the scenes between the four friends are spontaneously written and um they're they're the scenes that I struck the right tone on in the very first go and did very minimal editing thereafter yeah they were super fun to read and they felt super alive so thanks I'm glad I'm glad they were as fun to write as they were to read um so we've taken up a lot of your time, Rebecca. Um, I have one last question. What are you working on next? I have two books in the pipeline right now. The first is Yellow Faced, which comes out in May of 2023, which I guess is less than a year from now, which is crazy to think about because I've completely forgotten about it in all of the frenzy as Babel is about to launch. But Yellow Face is my literary fiction debut, so it's not speculative at all. It is set in contemporary America. Um, It's a book about writers and writers' rivalries and who owns what story, which I think is a very important conversation to have in contemporary debates about the state of publishing and whose voices are elevated and whose voices are invested in and who is marginalized for the sake of appealing to certain readerships that publishing want to cling on to. So that's a lot of fun. Um, a less intellectual way of describing it is a book that just drags everything about publishing. So it was very, very fun to write. And the the marketing for it has also been very amusing. Um, and I'm excited to see how that plays out. And my sixth book, which is the one about <laughs> Plato that I'm drafting right now, um, is best described as two rival magician PhD students journey to hell to rescue the soul of their dead advisor and end up falling in love in the process. Um, And actually, when it's explained that way, I think it's more commercial than I've been letting myself believe. But that's the one that's about philosophical thought experiments and logical paradoxes and the mind-body duality. Um, And yeah, that's what I'll go back to drafting as soon as we've wrapped up our conversation. They both sound super fun. Um, I'm really excited for them. So thank you so much for joining me today, Rebecca. Thank you for having me. I had so much fun. Yeah, thanks. Take care, everyone.